When my wife Erin and I went to Uganda in 2008 to adopt our sons, it was my first time ever being outside of North America. And my eyes were opened on that trip to how, just how different two cultures can be. For example, pretty early during our stay there, I, I once handed a piece of paper to our, our, the Ugandan lawyer that we had hired to pursue our adoption. And he took my paper and he saw my signature in this formal document and he laughed at me. He said something like, any child could have drawn that scribble. I need proof that this is really from you. And out of uh, cultural snobbery and self-righteous arrogance, I almost told him that my signature should be sufficient proof. But instead of that, I, I eventually asked him, how do Ugandans go about verifying documents and attesting to them? And he told me that I needed to get a stamp. Anytime a document needs an authoritative or a legally binding verification, it gets stamped. And it does not matter what shape the stamp has. It does not matter what the stamp looks like. I don't think the color matters either. But if you hand someone a paper with a stamp on it, nobody will question its authenticity. Hand them a paper with a signature and they will laugh or look confused. Now, of course, my snobbish reaction to this was... Any child can go to the dollar store and get a My Little Pony stamp and forge my documents. <clears throat> but that's beside the point. Two different cultures in different parts of the world can have completely different ideas about what sort of evidence marks a document's authenticity. And before that, I had never seriously questioned my culture's standard of authenticity, a signature, until I was faced with another culture that found it silly and childish. You see, our gut reaction to seeing a signature is to presume authenticity and not to question it. But different cultures do the same thing with different mechanisms. Why am I telling you all of this? It's because we're at the beginning of our sermon series in the book of Luke. And the purpose of Luke is to present evidence for the legitimacy of the Christian movement in the first century. Last week, when overviewing the book, I proposed that Luke was likely presenting this evidence to one of the Roman officials involved with the trial of the Apostle Paul. Now, that's not the only possible theory for Luke's purpose. But I think it makes the best sense of all the evidence. And we need to understand that the ancient world had different standards of authenticity than we have today. They had different mechanisms than we have to attest formally to something. And we must be willing to admit that our standards today in America, in the Western world, they are not necessarily better nor more legitimate than theirs were in the first century Middle East. We're about to read the beginning of Luke chapter 1. And the first piece of evidence 
that Luke will present is the eyewitness testimony of a guy who spoke with an angel. Now, if you or I told such a story in a court of law today, we'd be ridiculed into silence, if not held in contempt of court altogether. Because we live in a a society that has decided upon having a strong bias against anything supernatural. Now, I beg of you this morning to please look past our cultural snobbery and our cultural bias and please consider how you can know what you know to be true. In the ancient world, eyewitness testimony was everything. If you can find multiple credible eyewitnesses, you can prove a matter beyond a shadow of doubt. And you can corroborate it with other circumstantial evidence as well. Some aspects of our modern legal system still work this way. Where where witnesses and testimony does carry some serious weight. And ancient legal systems typically depended on finding a multiplicity of eyewitnesses who could present testimony, submit to cross-examination. You see, they didn't just accept it automatically but it would be cross-examined, and they would then offer further evidence capable of being corroborated. And Luke told us in the opening verses of his book that he meticulously researched his material. He interviewed the eyewitnesses, and he now presents it to us. So he presents it in a way to his original audience that those eyewitnesses could have gone and been cross-examined. They could have been corroborated. Luke does this in a way that seems strange to us, but it was largely considered testable and verifiable in the ancient world. And even as he presents us with his first eyewitness in the passage I'm about to read, Luke writes a bit of satire where he will poke fun at our presumptions regarding how we think we can know what we know to be true. And so with Luke chapter 1 this morning, let us consider how we can know what God is up to in the world. On your outline, you see that I will want to cover uh, that we know what ails us, we can know God's rescue plan, and some will see that plan in action. Let me pray for God's blessing on his word. Please join me. Our Father in heaven, please help us now as we read your word, as we study it, and as I seek to explain it, help us to receive your words. Help us to, uh, to see the, the testimony uh, and its corroboration. Help us to think long and hard about what standards we use to judge such things and how we can know what we know. Help us to see you and your glorious rescue plan more clearly today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, as we explore how we can know what we know, the first thing is that we know what ails us. Let me read verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So we hit the body of Luke's narrative here, his, his, his account, his orderly account of the things that have been uh, fulfilled among us. And he begins with an exceptionally clear statement of his source. And he will do this all throughout his book so that Theophilus, the recipient of this book, can go and track these people down if he needs to. His source here is this priest named Zechariah. You see, Luke wouldn't do this if he were making these things up himself. He wouldn't tell you, go and and talk to these people. Go to this place. Go and research these records that's all still available to you. He wouldn't do this if he were attempting to deceive us. He truly believed that this really happened, and he makes it as easy as possible for Theophilus, his recipient, to investigate and verify. And so we begin in the days of Herod, king of Judea, with a priest named Zechariah who was of the division of Abijah. You can track this thing down. Zechariah and his wife were old. Now, it's possible that they were no longer living as of the time when Luke was writing, but the, the records and the memories of living people can be checked that this was, in fact, a real guy who was this old at this time, and he did this service. He was really a part of this division. Luke wants us to see three things about this couple. First, he wants us to see that they were deeply Jewish. They were deeply Jewish. In verse 5, as a priest, he was deeply involved in Judaism, and he married a daughter of Aaron, which was the priestly family, not only someone from his tribe, but someone from that family within the tribe, the family of priests, and so Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are deeply entrenched in institutional, the institutional Judaism of the first century. They were deeply Jewish. And second, they were faithfully Jewish. In verse 6, they were faithfully Jewish. We're told that they were righteous before God. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments. You see... They were were deeply Jewish, but they weren't just going through the motions. They really believed in Judaism, and they were living in a way that pleased their God. They were righteous before God and blameless. However, third, Luke wants us to see that they were disappointingly Jewish. They were disappointingly Jewish. Verse 7 tells us that they had no child. They had no child. And this might have left them wondering whether they were truly righteous and blameless before God. This might have left them wondering whether there was some place in their lives that they weren't aware of where they had in fact broken God's commands and had failed to rectify the matter by sacrifice or confession. According to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28... If you obey God's law, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. You see, they knew there was something wrong, though they might not have known what. They might not have known what was the problem. Was the problem with themselves? Was the problem with their family? Was the problem with their world or with their religion or even with their God? Because 
If you obey, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. Wherever they went, this was their shame for their entire marriage. Table for two, please. No children's menus or booster seats will be necessary. In our culture, this is called independence and flexibility. But in that culture, it was called a curse. It was not much better than poverty or bankruptcy because your children were your retirement plan. They were your Medicare providers when you were old. It was called a curse. But in that culture, it was also called death and barrenness. Because your true life, the only way you could have life and joy to outlast you was for your children to carry on your name. Now it might look different for you and me today, but here's what is the same. We know what ails us. Just like it was very present to Zachariah and Elizabeth, they knew what was wrong. They knew something was bothering them. And we know what ails us. We know that life is not as satisfying or as fulfilling as we thought it would be. We all have our areas of shame and disgrace that we try to keep in the closet or under the rug. Every one of us has lost something that matters to us. Or we have failed to acquire that which we believe would stabilize us. We know that we ourselves are part of the problem. Though we typically try to keep that in the dark, we might not always be willing to let others see our contribution to what ails us. But we also know that sometimes there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Sometimes we, we suffer as citizens of a broken world and citizens of an increasingly demented society. For some of us, it might be an anger problem or an eating problem or a chronic illness or a miscarriage or a speech impediment or a history of mistreatment or abuse or a pattern of mistreating or abusing others or the lies we tell, or the greed we incubate, or the desires we entertain, or the compulsive self-love we constantly justify. We know what ails us. And we are no different in this than the ancients were, be they Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke 1, or Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis, or Hannah and Elkanah in 1 Samuel, all these these righteous couples through the history of God's people who didn't have any children for a long time. Or it could be the host of people in the Bible who, like those couples, felt out of place and outside of God's blessing. We know what ails us. But second, Luke goes on, we can know God's rescue plan. We can know God's rescue plan. Luke wants us to know that like Zechariah, we can know for a fact that God will not leave these ailments in the world forever. He is up to something 
And that something incorporates ailing people, and it is nearly unbelievable. Let me read verses 8 through 23. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. This passage is incredible. This passage has a a beautiful structure. I want to give you a a quick view in because it's designed to make a clear point. If we were to outline this passage, the structure of it, we, we can call it a chiasm. That's what scholars call it. Named after the Greek letter chi, which is shaped like the letter X. Basically, if you draw the outline, it looks like the left side of the letter X. It's like an arrow often intended to point out something significant, a turning point right in the middle. Here's how it works here. At the beginning, we have Zechariah appointed for a once-in-a-lifetime service as priest, and then in verse 23 at the end, his service ends and he goes home. Those are parallel to each other. If you move in one step, we have, we're told about the crowd of people waiting outside for him, and then... Next to last verse, we're told about the crowd that's waiting for him, wondering at his delay, and he makes signs. Move in another step, we have an angel appearing and explaining God's plan to Zechariah, 
And that's parallel to the second time the angel speaks where he explains exactly how Zechariah will know. And at the center, the hinge on which this whole passage flips is when Zechariah asks his question, the only time he speaks in this passage, how shall I know this? Now, I want to talk about God's rescue plan in the angel's first speech here, but we must first dwell on the center where Luke draws our attention, on Zechariah's unbelief coming out as this question, how shall I know this? This is the key to the passage, and this gets at Luke's stated purpose up in verse 4 of this chapter, which is that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is why Luke wrote this book to Theophilus, so he could know, so he could have certainty. It's no accident that Luke begins his narrative with a story of someone asking the very question, how shall I know this? This is Luke's purpose, to enable Theophilus and secondarily all of us to know the truth of what we've been told. And here is Zechariah, this faithful Jewish priest who is told something by the chief of angels. Now we, ourselves today, have also heard about God's rescue plan, most likely from other messengers and not from Gabriel. But the goal is the same, that we can know what has happened, that we can know what God is up to, and that we can know what this means for both us and the world. And we must catch the satire in Luke's narrative here. Here is a Jewish priest, and not only a priest, but a faithful priest who was righteous and blameless before God. Apart from the childlessness, this guy is the cream of the crop as far as religion is concerned. And God's chief angel shows up, the creature whom you could go back and read about in the book of Daniel, written centuries earlier. He's one of the very few named angels in the Bible. He's been around for thousands of years. And God uses Gabriel to explain to his most favored people the deepest mysteries of his plan for the future. That's what we see Gabriel doing in the Bible. And here, this faithful priest gets a visit from the most authoritative angelic messenger in the history of the world, and he asks, how can I know this? If Gabriel isn't enough if an angel sent from heaven speaking a message perfectly consistent with all the rest of God's previously written revelation, if he is not credible enough, then what else could possibly entice Zechariah to believe it? I can't help but catch from Luke's opening scene in his narrative a satirical attack on the opponents of Paul. Remember, the Apostle Paul is on trial for his life, and his chief accusers are Jewish priests. And one of their charges is that Paul tried to profane the temple. And so with this opening scene, it's as though Luke is saying, you can't really trust what Jewish priests say, even the best of them, when they are in the temple of God. If they will not listen and trust the word of God, 
regarding his rescue plan for the world. This is Luke's major point here in this passage. But with that said, let me make a few more comments on the rescue plan itself, which we find in verses 13 through 17. Here is what Zechariah was supposed to understand. In verse 13, God will execute his plan through the birth of a son, even to a very old couple. And this miraculous birth seems impossible, too good for Zechariah to believe it. Though it's not nearly as impossible as the next birth will be that gets predicted in the very next passage. In verse 14, we're told that this son will bring joy and gladness to many. In verses 16 and 17, he brings joy and gladness because he will have the task of turning hearts. That's his job, is to turn hearts. He will prepare people for the Lord by turning their hearts back to one another. And that happens because he will turn their hearts back to the Lord and he will show the disobedient where to find wisdom and justice. He'll turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. You see, this guy, this son who's going to be born to Elizabeth, he will launch a social renewal movement and the people of Israel will never be the same again. Verse 15 tells us that he can do this not because he's a drunken or a hallucinating maniac, but because he will be filled up and empowered by God's own spirit, even while he's in his mother's womb and then throughout his life, and ministry. This is God's rescue plan. And as the angel speaks this forth, he's connecting the work of Zechariah's son to a prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Malachi. You see, Luke wants to show us how everything is rooted in the Old Testament. Everything's rooted in what God's been up to. And Malachi predicted that someone like Elijah, Elijah was one of Israel's most powerful and effective prophets, in her history. And someone like Elijah would rise up one day to prepare the people for the Lord. He would turn their hearts back to each other so there wouldn't be so much fighting. And he would turn their hearts back to the Lord so there wouldn't be so much evil and deception and false worship. This is God's rescue plan. He does it through real people standing out from the crowd and helping people to return to their roots. You see, all that God has ever required of us is that we love him first of all and then we love one another as much as we tend to love ourselves. And John, the son of Zechariah, he was a unique figure with a unique role at his time to prepare people to meet someone for the first time even greater than he was. But God is generally still at work today doing some of the same things, showing us where our hearts really are how we've drifted away from him and how it's possible for us to return. Remember those things that we discussed at the beginning that ail us? How would your experience of those things be any different if you saw God's hand in them? If your heart turned to the Lord in that ailment? How would your experience be different if you thanked God for what he has done to care for you through this? 
How would it differ if you let go of those things that you are responsible for, those things that have prevented you from loving God or caring for others? How would your experience be any different if you walked with God, trusted Him, and rested in His fatherly care to provide for you? Zachariah's son, John, was sent in order to help us to turn our hearts away from our sin, away from our greed and our desires and our hopelessness and our grace, uh, our, our disgrace, and to turn us back to the Lord who has something better for us in mind. Friends, you and I can know what God is up to, and this is it. Turning our hearts back to Him. Now, perhaps you're still not sure you can trust this evidence. Maybe the report of an angel still has you kind of on edge and nervous, or perhaps you're not sure it could be so easy as to simply turn your heart back to God. Well, you should know that some people will see God's rescue plan in action. It's not just a pie-in-the-sky theory. Some people will really see it. Point number three. Look at how the first part of Zechariah's story in Luke resolves. Verses 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Notice here, at the conclusion of this first episode, how Zechariah is not even mentioned, except as a pronoun, so we know that this was his wife. Because of his unbelief, he misses out on the first stage of blessing. Not everyone gets to see with their own eyes, what God is up to. Zachariah's wife, Elizabeth, is one of the lucky few. And it's because she knows. She can see God's hand in it. You see that in verse 25. She says, thus the Lord has done for me. She gets pregnant and she knows it's not a happy coincidence. It's not a product of the universe smiling on her. It's not blind mutation or natural selection at work in her womb. It is nothing but the hand of God working to take away her reproach among the people. And she didn't even need an angel to appear to her to tell her that. Friends, when something finally goes your way in this fallen world, Where do you tend to assign the credit? The stock market? A friend or advisor? Your own good sense? That book that you read that gave you all the the, the right secrets or methods to a more nutritious diet or a healthier lifestyle or a happier life? Do you quickly And completely cast yourself on the Lord your God. And give thanks to Him for His mercy and kindness to you. This is what it means for your heart to turn back 
to the Lord. It means you trust his goodness in your dark times and you readily thank his kindness in your bright times. He is your Lord and your focus. He is your love. He is your desire. He is your all in all at all times and in every way. This is what Luke is after. And this is what must characterize us as God's people. Let me end with five implications of this story. Five implications to consider. Number one, all of this is preparing people for Jesus. All of this is preparing people for Jesus. Now, I want to be clear. We are not going to fix anything by just getting our own hearts right before God. In and of itself, we could do that, but then we'd still be stuck in our sins and have to pay for them somehow. I want to mention this to be clear because Jesus hasn't yet appeared in Luke's narrative, but he's getting there. He's getting there. We won't be ready for Jesus unless we are willing to confront our need to see our problem and to begin to realign our allegiance and our hearts toward the Lord. Implication number two, listening to the wrong voices won't get you any closer to the truth. In particular, Luke, in this text, casts a shadow of doubt on the veracity of the Jewish priests. Can you really trust Jewish priests, especially those who are accusing Paul of defiling the temple? Don't listen to them and their accusation. They won't even believe the truth if an angel from heaven appears to them. For us, we will likely look to other voices as being the most authoritative. Those with all the right educational degrees. Those with the greatest charisma. Those with the largest following. But friends, if you listen to anyone but the Lord and His messengers who are representing His message accurately, you will not land in the truth of God's rescue plan. We must ask this crucial question today. How shall I know? By what standard will I measure the truth or falsehood of what I'm hearing? What voice am I listening to? Implication number three. Those who won't listen to God will have nothing to say. Those who won't listen to God will have nothing to say. Zechariah won't listen so the angel renders him silent because of his unbelief. And this is a theme in Luke that the word of God has gone forth. He even mentioned this up in the beginning, verse 2, I think, that he interviewed these ministers of the word. And here the angel's upset because you've not listened to my word. The word of God has gone forth. Those who listen to it have much worth saying. But those who won't listen to it have nothing worth saying. And he demonstrates this fact right from the beginning in a powerfully vivid way with Zachariah's muteness. Lots of people in our day want to have a voice. They want to have a say in things. They want to be a part of the decision-making process. They want to blog. They want to become famous. They want their microaggressions or their opinions on just about anything to be broadcast on social media, liked and shared. And I confess, I have shared 
such desire, and I have wrestled regularly with my motives in doing such things. There is nothing wrong with any of these things, of having a voice, or being a part of the decision-making process, or being out there in the public sphere. There's nothing wrong with that. We need people to do all of them. We need people to step up, to fight the good fight, to communicate the truth, and persuade people to follow. Just please make sure you have something to say before you try to say it. That's the big mistake of a lot of social media today. We're doing a lot of talking without having anything to say first. Make sure you're listening to the Lord. Or else you have nothing to say. And in particular, implication number four, you can trust what God says about rescue from your worst ailment. We all know what we're suffering from. We know that the biggest problem in this world, the ultimate source of every other problem, and the thing that presents, prevents real solutions is what we call sin. And God has offered you a way to be rescued from your sin problem. If you would but trust and love Jesus Christ, declare him your Lord and King and trust your life to him. You can trust what God says about rescue from your worst ailment. And finally, implication number five, don't fear the bluster of those who refuse to believe. Don't fear the bluster of those who refuse to believe. Just as Paul was facing trial because of those who set out to knock him down, so also will we face anger and persecution when we preach the word of Christ. When we listen to God's rescue plan and we then speak it forth, we will face anger and persecution. But fear not. He who is with us is far greater than he who is with them. And in the end, their mouths will be shut. Every mouth will be silenced and held accountable to God. Now, if they turn around to speak forth, praise the Lord Jesus, then they can have life. But otherwise, their mouths will be shut. And all that you have suffered at their hands will be paid back to you, big time. Any temporary silence you suffer will not last forever. God will one day open your mouth in unending praise and thankfulness to him. You see, Zechariah had a moment of unbelief that led to his silence. But even his unbelief will not last forever. We'll see later in this chapter how God used that to turn Zechariah's heart away from his fear and back to the word of his God who rescues. May we learn from Zechariah that's all it takes. Turning around, listening to the word of the Lord, participating in his great rescue. This is how we can know. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the great and mighty God over all the earth. And you have seen what ails us. You have seen our sin, our suffering, our dark and fallen world, and you have opened a way for rescue 
Lord, please turn our hearts back to you that we might look to you, wait upon you for this Savior whom you have redeemed from heaven, Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to trust in him that his death pays the full penalty for our sin. And may we wait longingly and eagerly for him to return and bring an end to sin once and for all. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. Help us to know. Help us to be certain of these things that we have been taught. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.